Welcome back to Majoring in the Minors. This is the um, part of our uh, the part of our summer where we are taking a look at all of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. There's 12 of them, and so we've been taking a Sunday. We've been looking at each of the minor prophets. So we've so far looked at Hosea, Joel, Amos, and Obadiah, and today we get to talk about Jonah, which now I'm mildly terrified because Fred was like, this is my favorite book, and I now have the best chance of ruining that for you. So thanks for that. Um, <laughs> Jonah is a very, very different book than all of the other minor prophets that we've read thus far. The other books have been pretty similar in terms of content and layout. It's been a prophet who receives a word from the Lord, and then he goes and shares that with God's people. And the word usually consists of, uh, this is from God, these are the words of God. God knows all the stuff that you've done. And it's not because God is like a list taker and he just loves throwing sin in people's faces. It's because the people who are supposed to be representing his grace and mercy on earth are committing terrible injustices and doing things they shouldn't be. And as a result, they are bringing justice upon themselves for, the, for their injustice. So they're basically bringing judgment upon themselves. So God says, this is me talking. I haven't missed any of the stuff that you've done. It grieves me that you're acting this way, and, and there is judgment coming because of what you've done. But if you repent, I will forgive you and possibly spare you of some of the consequences of your actions. That's been, <clears throat> excuse me, that's been the, really the first four weeks of our study. Jonah's not like that. Jonah is completely different. It is, n- it is less of words of a prophet to a bunch of people, and it's more of a story about a prophet. And so to give us a really quick overview and some background on the book of Jonah, we're going to turn to our friends at thebibleproject.com. They do these crowdsourced videos with incredible animation. I know that you guys have enjoyed them a lot since we've been showing them so far this summer. You can check all their videos out online at thebibleproject.com for free. Um, We support them as a church financially because the stuff they do is fantastic. It's not just videos about particular books of the Bible, but they do biblical concepts and themes like God's plan of salvation across the Bible and holiness and all this kind of stuff. It's really, really great. So let's turn to our friends at thebibleproject.com and check out the first couple minutes of their video on the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah a subversive story about a rebellious prophet who hates God for loving his enemies. Jonah's unique among the prophets of the Old Testament because they're typically collections of God's words spoken through the prophet. But this book doesn't actually focus on the words of the prophet. Rather, it's a story about a prophet, a really mean and nasty prophet. Jonah appears only one other time in the Old Testament. It's during the reign of Jeroboam II, one of Israel's worst kings. And Jonah prophesied in his favor, promising that he would win a battle and regain all this territory on Israel's northern border. Now, it's important to know that the prophet Amos also confronted Jeroboam, and through him, God specifically reversed Jonah's prophecy, promising that Jeroboam would lose all of those same territories because he was so horrible. So before the story of Jonah even begins, we are suspicious of Jonah's character. The book of Jonah has a beautiful design with all this literary pairing and symmetry. So you have chapters 1 and 3 telling the story of Jonah's encounter with non-Israelites, first with some sailors and then with Jonah's hated enemies, the Ninevites. And each part offers a comic contrast between Jonah's selfishness and the pagans' humility and repentance. Chapters 2 and 4 contain prayers of Jonah. One is a prayer of repentance, kind of, and the other is a prayer in which Jonah chews out God for being too nice. 
Now, this careful design of the book is matched by a really unique style of narration. The story's full of all of these stereotyped characters who, ironically, do the exact opposite of what you think they would do. So you have the prophet, the man of God, who rebels and hates his own God. You have the sailors who are supposed to be really immoral, but actually they have soft, repentant hearts and turn to God in humility. You have the king of the most powerful, murderous empire on the planet, and he humbles himself before God because of Jonah's five-word sermon, and even the king's cows repent. This kind of story fits what today we would call satire. These are stories about well-known figures who are placed in extreme circumstances, and they use humor and irony to critique their stupidity and character flaws. Does that sound at all like the book of Jonah that you remember? Uh, I remember growing up hearing Jonah, and it the, what, what sticks in my mind is the story, the part of the story about the big fish, right? Because it's fantastic and it's supernatural. And I, I think the version most of us are at least familiar with is Jonah's a prophet, he runs from the will of God, gets on a ship, some stuff happens, gets swallowed by a giant whale, and then eventually he goes and preaches to the people he was running from, and God redeems the entire city. And it's like, yay, it's a good story, it feels really good. Uh, but when you read through the book of Jonah, which is actually very short, it's only two pages in, um, in the Bible that I'm going to be reading from this morning. When you actually read it, Jonah comes across as very different than I remember. Uh, this guy's like the worst prophet ever. Um, and so, again, sorry, Fred. <laughs> But we're going we're gonna to take a look at the book of Jonah today, and we're going to read through, we're going to do the whole story. We're not going to read through the entire book, though. Again, it's page one, page two, and then it's Micah, so it's very, very short. But I want to go through the whole story because we've become so familiar with it. I mean, even people who are not Christians or who have never read the Bible are generally at least aware of the fact that Christians believe some dude got swallowed by a fish and lived. So... We've become so familiar with this story that oftentimes the things that are meant to shock us or the things that, that maybe the first time we read it really stood out to us, they don't stand out to us anymore because we've become so familiar with it. And so I think we're going to go through the entire thing today and try to do our very best to kind of hear with like fresh ears, like we're hearing it for the first time, and I'll try to give some, uh, some flavor and, and t- uh, context where appropriate. And then we're going to ask a couple questions of the text and see what we can uh, learn to apply in our own lives as disciples of Christ. So before we go, though, I want to reiterate something that the Bible Project video said, and this is your big idea for today. It's not the big idea of the book of Jonah, but it's a big idea that I want you to remember, and if you keep this in the front of your mind, it will help as we work through this very familiar story. It may help to um, help you see it with fresh eyes. Big idea is in the book of Jonah, nothing happens the way you expect it to. Nothing happens the way you expect it to at all. Everything is completely upside down and backwards. As they, as they said in the video, all of these characters, you expect, they're stereotypes. You expect them to act a certain way, and then they act the complete opposite way. The prophet, who's supposed to love people and follow God's commands, is pretty filled with hate and disobeys God at every possible turn, and all these other people who you would think would be non-repentant and evil people, they end up receiving God's mercy. So every single thing in this story is completely 
upside down and backwards. Nothing happens the way you expect it to. So let's jump right in. Chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord gave this message to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Pronounce my judgment against it, because I have seen how wicked its people are. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa, where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket and went on board, hoping to escape the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. So right away, Jonah does what you would not expect a prophet to do. He gets up and goes in the opposite direction, away from the people that God is telling him to go and prophesy to. Why does he do that? You'll find out later. Chapter 4, Jonah kind of comes clean about why he ran. And so we'll get there later. But all we know for now, this is the first time you're hearing this story or the first time you're reading it, all we know right now is that the prophet who's supposed to be obedient is being disobedient immediately, and he runs and flees to this boat to try and get away from God. And the text, it's interesting, it mentions two times in the span of one verse that he's trying to get away from or escape from the Lord, which means that he thinks he can. And the Israelites should know that God is everywhere, that he's omnipresent. But the fact that Jonah thinks he can actually get away from God kind of shows you how some of, the, uh, some of the other religions and cultures around the Israelites at that time really influenced their view of God. They had allowed, ever since Solomon started allowing some worship of foreign gods into, um, into the worship of the one true God, some of those ideas had been getting mixed up in the Israelites' head and had kind of become fused with their ideas of God, which should scare everybody because you have to understand that isms can really, really warp your view of God. That's why we're always saying, like, Go to the Bible. That's why this is important, because if all you do is hear about God from people who are imperfect, then your view of God can change in some ways that aren't really correct. And I'm not going to preach that sermon today, so I'm going to stop right there. But just note that, again, not only is he disobedient, but the prophet who, who really should know God, maybe the best out of everybody in Israel, has this warped view that he can actually escape from God like God is limited. Like he's limited to this certain place, and if I can just get far enough away, then everything will be fine, and I won't have to obey his command. So really, really weird, really, really weird stuff from, from the prophet here. So then he gets on the ship. They set sail. God causes a giant wind to swell up, and this huge storm happens on the ship. Jonah, of course, is sleeping in the boat, and the sailors are scared for their lives. They're tossing stuff overboard, trying to lighten the load. They're making offerings to their own gods, and of course, their own gods aren't showing up because they don't exist. And eventually, the sailors go right to Jonah, and they're like, who are you? What did you do? And Jonah says, well, I'm a Hebrew. I serve the Lord who made the land and sea, which is really great because if he made the land and sea, why are you running away on it? Okay. But then he also tells them, I'm actually running. I am running from God. And the sailors are really upset about this. They're like, why are you running from the God who made the earth and the sea? And why did you get on our boat and get us involved in this? So Jonah says, uh, he says, if you throw me into the sea, it'll become calm again. I know this terrible storm is all my fault. And this is the part in the version that I read when I was a kid where I thought to myself, what a noble thing to do. He's recognized that his own sin has endangered the lives of these sailors, and he's ready to sacrifice himself so that they can live. 
And I don't really think that anymore. <laughs> I think that he would rather die than be obedient to what God wants him to do. And if you think that might be a little dramatic, wait till we get to chapter 4 when Jonah says twice, God, just kill me in much less dire circumstances. So Jonah, across this entire book, as you will see, is more than willing to get himself killed so that he does not have to follow through on what God told him to do. And I'm sure if he did have a change of heart, he probably wouldn't have had to throw himself overboard. He could have probably prayed and, and, and repented and asked God, and God maybe would have calmed the storm that way. But it's not the way this happens. Jonah really wants to get out of doing this thing, and so he's like, throw me overboard. And this is the point in the story where if you're reading this for the first time, or especially if you're reading this um, as an Israelite, or you're reading this when the book of Jonah was written, you would say, oh, these sailors are going to take advantage of this opportunity and chuck them right overboard. Because these guys worship false gods from that region, and most of the cultures and religions around the Israelites at the time had no problem with human sacrifice. So, if you can toss them off the boat, and it'll save our lives, and killing people is kind of normal for us, easy. Or at least that's what you would think they would do, but they don't. They absolutely refuse to throw Jonah overboard. They're not going to take this guy's life. Totally backwards of what you would expect as a reader. So they continue to do everything they can to try to get this boat to shore. They row as hard as they can. Just nothing is working. It eventually gets to the point where they're like, we hate to say this, but it's him or us, basically. But even when they prepare to throw him overboard, they don't do it flippantly. As they prepare to throw him over, they actually cry out for mercy from God. They say, oh Lord, don't make us die for this man's sin. Don't hold us responsible for his death. Oh Lord, you have sent this storm upon him for your own good reasons. So they are crying out for mercy for what they're about to do. Again, not what you would expect. So they throw Jonah overboard and immediately the sea is calm. And it says, it says, they threw him into the raging sea and the storm stopped at once. So again, big waves, big storm, and then it's not like, and the storm clouds slowly went away and eventually the big waves became small waves and everything. It's like, no, it's a really big storm and then all of a sudden the sea is like glass. Because then it says the sailors were awestruck by the Lord's power and they offered him a sacrifice and vowed to serve him. These sailors turn out to have repentant hearts far more than the prophet who was on their ship. Again, completely unexpected. So Jonah is in the water, and a giant fish comes and swallows him up. And we're not going to talk about the identity of the fish today. It's cool and fun if you look into it, but first of all, we're never going to be able to really figure it out. And secondly, it doesn't really matter. It is a really, really cool supernatural miracle in a book that is filled with supernatural miracles. And it captures our imagination because we're like, was it a whale? Was it like a really big shark? We don't, we don't know. But really, this is the, the fact that he gets swallowed by a fish is kind of a small detail when you think about what God is really trying to get across with the book of Jonah. So that's all I'm going to say about the fish. So Jonah is inside the whale, and he prays this prayer. Now, 
if I was inside a giant fish or whale or whatever, and I thought I was going to die, and I'm drowning and sinking to the bottom of the ocean, and all of a sudden a fish eats me, and somehow I'm alive and can breathe and all that kind of stuff, I'd probably pray too. <laughs> I don't think you need to be a Christian to know that you'd probably pray to somebody if you find yourself alive in the belly of a giant fish. But Jonah's prayer here is very interesting to me. And again, I used to read it like, how noble and wonderful is this prayer? And now I read it and I'm like, this guy's a joke. Um, so I'm going to read this prayer to you, and I want you to see if you can pick out anything that's missing. Remember, Jonah has disobeyed God. He has put the lives of other people in danger because of his disobedience. And then in order to get out of trying to do what God wants him to do, he tried to get himself killed. So, with that in mind, here is his prayer. I cried out to the Lord in my great trouble, and he answered me. I called to you from the land of the dead, and Lord, you heard me. You threw me into the ocean depths, and I sank down to the heart of the sea. The mighty waters engulfed me. I was buried beneath your wild and stormy waves. Then I said, O oh Lord, you have driven me from your presence, yet I will look once more towards your holy temple. I sank beneath the waves, and the waters closed over me. Seaweed wrapped itself around my head. I sank down to the very roots of the mountains. I was imprisoned in the earth, whose gates locked shut forever. But you, O oh Lord, snatched me from the jaws of death. As my life was slipping away, I remembered the Lord, and my earnest prayer went out to you in your holy temple. Those who worship false gods turn their backs on all God's mercies, but I will offer sacrifices to you with songs of praise, and I will fulfill all my vows, for my salvation comes from the Lord alone. Did you pick up on anything missing in that prayer? Exactly. He did not repent at all. He is miraculously saved and somehow breathing air so he can talk in the belly of this giant fish, and he is not repentant about any of the decisions that got him to this point. He doesn't say, I'm sorry. He doesn't show a change of heart. And what's worse is he tries to play, it sounds like to me that he's trying to play the noble martyr card, making it a sob story. Lord, you've driven me from your presence, but I will look once more toward your holy temple. Dude, he didn't drive you from his presence. You actually tried to outrun his presence, and it said so twice. God did not push you out. You ran from him. Give me a break. And then I mean, I'm, like, I'm trying not to be disrespectful of the Bible and the text here and stuff like that, but like Jonah's prayer is just, it's like a joke. And there is some truth in there, because I believe, I do believe verse 7, as my life was slipping away, I remembered the Lord and I prayed to you. Yeah, I think pretty much any of us would do that, so I don't think there's anything inherently noble or repentant in that act. And then verse 8 actually really, really bothers me, because Jonah says something in a prayer to God that is patently false, and he knows it. He says, those who worship false gods turn their backs on all God's mercies. After he just watched a bunch of sailors refuse to throw him overboard, and then when they had no other choice, they begged for God's mercy before they tossed him. But here in a prayer to Almighty God, he is saying, he is reinforcing an idea in his head that everybody else that's not an Israelite is turning their back on God's mercies. It's like he's trying to convince himself that some view he holds of people who are not Israelites is true, 
even in the face of evidence that tells him otherwise. Interesting. To his credit, he does say, I'll offer sacrifices and I'll fulfill all my vows. In other words, I'll go and do what you tell me to. Again, though, you tried to run from God, that didn't work. Then you tried to get yourself killed, and God didn't let you die. So at this point, I think he's kind of resigned to his fate, like, there is literally nothing I can do to get away from God. I guess I might as well go and do this. And after this prayer, this is just hilarious to me, after this prayer, God's response is to order the fish to barf Jonah out on a beach. It's like, I hear your prayer, bleh. So the fish barfs up Jonah, who probably smells a little bit. And God comes to Jonah again and speaks to him a second time. This is the beginning of chapter 3. He says, Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver the message I have given you. So he gives him the same orders again. And this time Jonah does it, because what else is he going to do? He gets to Nineveh, and on the day he enters the city, he delivers God's message. Or does he? Because if you go back to chapter 1, God said, Announce my judgment against the city of Nineveh because I've seen how wicked its people are. And here's what Jonah actually says. He walks into Nineveh, and he stands up, and he says, Forty days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. And then he drops the mic and walks away. That is not at all what God told him to say. God said, you need to announce my judgment. In other words, when you get there, you need to tell people who is judging them. In other words, you need to at least mention the fact that this is God, his, the, his words, his judgment. So Jonah doesn't mention that. Additionally, if you follow what these other prophets have been doing, they, have, you know, they list out the things they've been doing, which, of course, if you're bringing a case to someone for why you're bringing judgment, it's kind of helpful to prove that you have evidence, right? And God gave Jonah evidence, too, when he said you need to announce judgment, because of how wicked they are. So Jonah completely ignores that part too. And then he puts a time limit on it, which God didn't put a time limit on. You see the problem here? He's still disobeying. He's trying his very, very best to avoid the prophecy that might lead to repentance for these people. And that's really weird for a prophet to do. But somehow, this really short message actually gets through, and people start repenting the entire city over. Eventually, this gets to the king. The king takes off his robes. He steps off his throne, which is surprising. Again, not what you would expect. And then he sends this decree throughout the city. These are the king's orders. He says, no one, not even the animals from your herds and flocks, may eat anything at all. People and animals alike must wear garments of mourning, and everyone must pray earnestly to God. They must turn from their evil ways and stop all their violence. Who can tell? Perhaps even yet, God will change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. So this heathen king, which by the way, Nineveh is in Assyria. So the Ninevites are basically a part of the empire that has been the perennial enemy of Israel, of Israel for a really long time. And eventually, because Israel does not repent, eventually God allows Assyria to wipe them off the map. So there is a lot of hostility between Israel and Assyria, and Israel and Nineveh. 
So for the people, for, for God's actual legitimate enemies and the legitimate enemies of God's people to turn around and start repenting is incredible. And what's more, the king says something that actually is very similar to another prophecy that we read already. In the book of Joel, Joel is telling Israel, much like the other prophets, you got to shape up, but if you repent, God will forgive you. And then Joel says something like, perhaps he will even spare you from some of the judgment. And right here, the king says, you got to turn from your evil ways, you got to stop your violence, and who can tell? Perhaps even yet, God will change his mind and hold back his anger from destroying us. So you see a very repentant king and a very repentant people, and this is proven in the very next verse, when God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he threatened. Why? Because they had put a stop to their evil ways. This is what repentance actually looks like. Repentance is not just a show. Also from Joel, if you remember a couple weeks ago, God says, I want you to rend your hearts, not your garments. In other words, your, you know, your petty shows of acting like your repentance and playing the part of being a repentant person makes me sick. What I would rather you do is be cut to the heart by how your sin has affected you and your relationship with me and your relationship to other people and how your sin is hurting people that I love. That's what God is really after. Anytime you hear any pastor talk about repentance, that's what it means. It means to actually stop the evil that you're doing. Repent doesn't just mean to turn away. That is part of it, but it's incomplete. Because to truly repent means to change your thoughts, your attitudes, and your behaviors concerning sin and concerning God's commands for right living. That's what it really means to repent. And you see that, not with God's people, but you see that happening right here with God's enemies. They actually stop the evil they're doing in the 40 days that it took them or I guess the 40 days you know, of the prophecy, that time limit that Jonah put on it, they repent completely. That is incredible. And also, incredibly unexpected. And Jonah is absolutely livid. He is not happy about this at all. And here's what he says. He complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That's why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. Wow. All the nice things that we know about God, all the good things, his mercy, his compassion, his love, his grace, the things that we sing about on Sunday morning, Jonah just took a list of those things and is using them to accuse God of being too merciful and too compassionate. 
This is why I ran. Didn't I tell you that if I went and preached this message that you were going to have mercy on these people? Does that sound a little backwards to you at all? From someone who's supposed to be representing God to this entire city and to the people that he served back home? Sounds really backwards to me. And here's God's response. Is it right for you to be angry about this? That's it. Do you, in other words, is your anger justified? Do you actually have a real legitimate reason to be mad about the fact that I just spared an entire city because they repented? Do you have any reason to really be mad about this? And Jonah just sulks. He leaves the city. He stomps out. You know, in my head, he's doing the toddler stomp. You know, I'm not. And he does the toddler stomp outside the city. He plops himself down on a hill lets the sun beat down on his head, and he just sits there and is miserable. And then God decides it's time for a little object lesson to try and get through to Jonah. So here's what happens. He causes a really big leafy plant to just sprout up overnight and cover Jonah from the sun. Of course, Jonah's happy about this. Who wouldn't be? Get some protection from the sun, nice little shade, maybe there was a breeze, who knows. But he's really happy about it. Then the following day, just like God created the plant, God creates a worm. And the worm eats the roots of the plant, and the plant dies. And once again, Jonah is ridiculously angry about it. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. Again, a little bit dramatic. The sun's on your face, dude. Calm down. But once again, God comes back to Jonah as he's raging about the loss of this plant, and he says basically the same thing he said before. Is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Is your anger really justified? Jonah says, yes, even angry enough to die. And here's God's response. This is the last two verses of the book of Jonah. Chapter 4, verse 10. Then the Lord said, You feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and died quickly. In other words, answering God's previous question of, Is your anger justified? No, it's not. For a bunch of reasons. One, you didn't even go out looking for the plant. You sat down with no shade because you were miserable. You didn't try to find a tree to sit under. You didn't even want this plant. And nor did you plant the seed or water it or anything like that. So the fact that you suddenly have a plant, you didn't do anything to deserve the plant. Therefore, you have no reason to be mad because it's gone. But then God makes the connection. You feel sorry for the plant, though you did nothing to put it here. It came quickly and died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? And that's the end of the book of Jonah. It's very abrupt. We don't get Jonah's answer. For all we know, it could have been a rhetorical question. But God says, shouldn't I feel sorry? In other words, shouldn't I, shouldn't I want to bring mercy on people who want it? Shouldn't I desire that? 
And do you have any right to be upset about the fact that I did? But we don't get any other answer. No commentary, nothing. The book of Jonah is over. Now, thankfully, at Echo Community Church, we've had some experience with abrupt endings recently. If you remember from our study through the Gospel of Mark, most of that book is incredibly abrupt. Major events start and end in just a couple verses, little to no commentary. Even the book itself and its original ending is just the women ran away from the tomb, the end. You don't meet the resurrected Jesus again. It's just, it ends right there. And we found out that the reason that Mark ends his gospel like that is because he actually wants you to wrestle with what you've heard. And I think that's the exact same thing with the book of Jonah. God wanted Jonah in that moment. He was putting a mirror up to Jonah and saying, look at yourself. And in the very end of the book of Jonah, a reader will get to that, not get closer to the question, and then be forced to deal with that incredibly uncomfortable question themselves. So let's ask two short questions about the book of Jonah. Number one, what is the purpose of the book of Jonah? It's really different from all the other prophetic books, right? It's not the words of God to people through a prophet. It's a story about a really angry, miserable, disobedient prophet. So the method is wildly different, but the purpose is exactly the same. Just like the other prophetic books, Jonah is designed to put God's people face to face with their sin in an effort to lead them to repentance. That's why Jonah is here. That's why it's in the Bible. Same thing as the other minor prophets we've been reading. God wants to bring his people face to face with their sin because if he can do that, it might lead them to repent when they see what they're doing. The book of Jonah holds a mirror up to the reader and asks them to examine themselves. And the more I studied this book out this week, the, it, it, my, my studying actually led me to worshiping God when I realized how absolutely brilliant this book is. If you watch the rest of the BibleProject.com video, they talk about the way that the book is structured and, and all that kind of stuff. And everything... And I agree with them, so you should definitely go watch it. Uh, but everything from the structure to how God uses imperfect people in the book, every single part of this book is absolutely brilliant. And you have to understand that this is a historical account. In the last hundred years, the book of Jonah has come under fire. There are some scholars who believe that it is not a historic account. They think it's a parable. I have a couple problems with this. First of all, this book does not read like other parabolic literature from that time period, whether uh, in Israel or out of it. It doesn't match up. So there's some historical inconsistencies with calling this parable from that time period. So that's the first thing. Second thing, and they mentioned this in the Bible Project video, is that Jonah is actually mentioned in a credible historic book, Second Kings. And it's not just a guy named Jonah because you could meet another guy named Jonah, and it could be the different one. But both 2 Kings and the prophetic book of Jonah identify the Jonah in their story as Jonah, the son of Amittai. So that's really, really similar. So if he is a real historical character, he's a real person that actually lived 
from a credible historic book, then that leads a lot more credibility to Jonah being historic. But then if that's not good enough for you, but the word of Jesus is good enough for you, I have good news. Because in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus treats Jonah like a historical account. And we're not actually going to get to Matthew 12 today. I thought about it. I really want to. There's some really cool stuff in Matthew chapter 12. If you, uh, when you get home, just Google Matthew 12, sign of Jonah. And it'll pull up the last part of Matthew chapter 12. And you'll see an encounter between Jesus and the Pharisees where he kind of brings up a lot of what we talked about today. And it's like one of those mic drop, oh, moments when Jesus says what he says. So I would highly encourage you to go check that out, the last part of Matthew chapter 12. But at any rate, this is a actual historical, a credible historic book. Now, why am, I, why am I saying this? Why am I trying to prove this to you? Because I want you to understand that God, in real, actual human history, it's not just a parable where he can write the characters and do whatever he wants to make a point, which is still good and valid, and Jesus does it all the time. But in this particular case, God actually uses, in real, actual human history, a very imperfect person, not only to bring redemption to an entire city of people, but he also, in doing so, uses that prophet to characterize or exemplify the entire Israelite culture. So when they hear this story, they look at the prophet and see themselves. Again, it's like holding up a mirror and seeing yourself in it. That's how brilliant God was in, in designing the book of Jonah. He uses imperfect people in human history to accomplish multiple things. A bunch of people were saved, and now we have the uncomfortable task of examining ourselves to look at the sin in our own life. And the sin most, most common in the person of Jonah is the sin of hating his enemies. And that's why he's so livid that God is having mercy. Because God, these people are the people that have been terrorizing your people. They have killed us. They've taken from us. Why on earth would you have mercy on them and then send all these other prophets trying to condemn us? They thought that because God was with them, just, just solely based on the fact that they were God's people, that they were somehow exempt from God's law. That sin was somehow okay. You see this in the book of Micah. We're going to talk about this uh, next Sunday. When all of these people are doing terrible, terrible things to the poor, to those who don't have the advantages to get away from this, the terrible things they're doing, and the priests are just like, what's anybody going to do? We're God's people. It's totally fine. God is with us. And how messed up of a view to have that just because you have God in your life, you're somehow exempt from punishment or judgment for the sin that you commit. Wow. But again, you see that in the book of Jonah. So my uncomfortable question to you today, and this is the big question. Um, I'm kind of going out of order for what's in your notes there. We're going to get to question number two in a minute. But the big question that I want all of us to ask ourselves today is this. God is eager to give mercy. Am I? Sometimes we have, we have difficulty forgiving people, right? 
especially people that have hurt us. A quick reminder that forgiveness and reconciliation are two different things. Takes one to forgive, takes two to reconcile. We are not responsible for reconciling every single thing. We are responsible for forgiving because we've been forgiven. So, with that brief aside, I know that we struggle to forgive our enemies. But what if you actually had the opportunity to minister them to them in a way where they would repent and receive the same love that you've received? Would you do it? Could you put aside pride? Could you put aside the need for vengeance? Could you put aside all of that and really minister to somebody that's your, your, like your mortal enemy, the person that when you hear them, it just, just makes you bristle. It puts you on edge. That person. If God wanted to use you to bring mercy to that person, would you do it? Could you do it? Jonah, in accusing God, he said that you, uh, he said you are eager to turn back from destroying people. In other words, God is so eager to be merciful. And you know what? We've all benefited of that. If you're a Christian, we, we were enemies of God, not because God wanted us to be, but because of our sin, we positioned ourselves in opposition to God. And because God is eager to give mercy, he sent his son Jesus to die for us. So when you consider that, the way that we look at our enemies or the way that we look at people that we hate, and I know hate is a strong word and that's why I'm using it, because I'm very, very concerned for Christians in America, we are very good at disguising hatred as righteous indignation or disgust. It is okay to be disgusted. In fact, if you're not disgusted at injustice, there's something wrong with you. You need to check yourself. So I'm not saying that, that our, our righteous holiness and disgust that comes out of a love for God and seeing injustice happen to people that God loves, that is completely fine and it's appropriate. And in fact, Jesus got disgusted too. Dude flipped a bunch of tables in his father's house, right? So disgust is fine and completely appropriate. The problem is, I think that we often will take our disgust, we, we, we take somebody's sin that we have seen or we perceive them to have done, and we wrap that around them kind of like, like an invisible garment. And then whenever we look at that person, we see the sin rather than the person underneath who has been made and crafted in the image of God, that God made with purpose, that God made with gifts and talents to increase his kingdom that God wants the very, very best for and sent his son to die so they could have it. That's what concerns me. And I see that in myself. Thankfully, not recently. God dealt, me, God dealt very, very quickly with this like three, three or four years ago. Whenever somebody would do something bad, and I mean like it was didn't take a lot to, to get on my list. It was like if you cut me off in traffic or something like that. Um, but there was uh, there's more heinous stuff, like when you see these terrible, terrible reports on the news about sex trafficking and things like that. The first thing that would come to my mind is they're going to get what's coming to them. Maybe not on earth, but they won't escape God's judgment. That's the first thing that came to mind. And that is true. However, what God really dealt with me about was 
Why aren't you, why is that your first reaction? Why aren't you instead reacting and praying for that person? And praying that they get to a point in their lives where they recognize what they've done and they repent and can receive mercy. Why aren't you praying for that? And that put me in my place. It is not my place to bring judgment. It's my place to apply mercy wherever I can because my Savior applied mercy. Here's a second question. And this all kind of fits together. How does Jonah point us towards Christ? We've asked this question of all the books that we've been looking at, all these minor prophets. How does Jonah point us towards Jesus Christ? There's a couple different ways, and I want to talk about one of them. Uh, The obvious one, the really obvious one, is a dude sleeping in a boat in a really big storm, and the people in the boat are scared, and then God calms the storm supernaturally, and the people in the boat worship God. Do you remember something else like that that we talked about this year? In the book of Mark, Pastor Phil gave a sermon. It was called, he called it, Jesus Terrifies His Disciples. It's great. It's a sticky name. And uh, it was on February 24th, in case you want to go back and listen to it. And at the very end of his sermon, he was talking about how Jesus is the true Jonah. And he talked about how uh, you see in the, the parallel of those two incidents, they're very, very similar for an obvious reason to point to Christ. And you see how Jonah's shortcomings actually ended up pointing to a more perfect prophet or a more perfect Jonah, if you think of Jonah as a type, a more perfect Jonah that would come and do similar things, but to a greater degree than the original could ever do. And so I don't want to re-preach that because you did a fantastic job. So if you're interested in listening to that, um, again, it was February 24th. You can check out the podcast archive on our website, echochurchonline.com and you can listen to that. It's really, really fascinating, really good stuff. There's another place I see Jesus in this text. And again, this just shows how absolutely brilliant God is, and the Holy Spirit was in inspiring the writer of Jonah to write it the way he wrote it about actual history. Jonah, he says, when he gets into the city of Nineveh, he says, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. That word destroyed... The Hebrew word, please forgive me if I terribly mispronounce this word, is hafak. That word has two, well, it has one meaning that can mean two things in different contexts. The best English translation that we have for that word is the word overturned. And this word is used in the Old Testament in different contexts to mean two different things. It can mean destroyed. And that, of course, is what Jonah wanted it to mean, right? Because he wants his enemies to get completely annihilated. So you see that word mean destroyed when you go back to the book of Genesis and you look at Sodom and Gomorrah and it says the city was overturned, literally meaning it was annihilated. So that's one meaning for that word based on that context. There's another meaning for that word. It means to be changed or transformed. And you see this in the book of Exodus, when the, uh, during the ten plagues, when the water is turned into blood, that's the word there. You also see this, actually you see it in lots of places in the Old Testament, but one of the more famous ones is Psalm 30, 11. You have turned my mourning into dancing. It's been transformed. So this word overturned can mean 
completely destroyed or completely transformed. Jonah, in bringing this prophecy, states that in 40 days this city is going to be overturned, and he's expecting it to be destroyed. But because of the mercies of God and the repentance of the people, it is overturned, but it's actually completely transformed instead. You see how God worked with an imperfect prophet and a very imperfect prophecy. It actually came true, just not the way Jonah thought it would. So why am I saying all of that, and how does that point to Jesus? At some point, all of us will be overturned. Either one of two things will happen. The sin that we've committed that weighs on our shoulders, if the price for that sin is not paid, there will be a time in the future when we'll be called to account for that sin. And the payment for that sin is death. So if we go before the throne of God and we're judged according to the sin in our lives that has not been covered, we will be overturned in the meaning that we will be completely destroyed. And that's eternal and that's terrifying. We also, because of what Jesus has done on the cross, we have a way to get to the other meaning of overturned. We'll be overturned. We can be overturned right now by accepting what Jesus has done for us. And then we're not destroyed, but rather right now in this moment, not at some distant point in the future, but actually right now, we can be overturned and completely changed and completely transformed. And the man, God-man, who presides over both the judgment and the transformation is Jesus Christ himself. That's how I see Jesus in the, book of Noah, in the book of Jonah. You see God so eager to exhibit his mercy, and you see repentant hearts turning to him, and you see a complete and total transformation. And that's something many of us in this room have experienced as well. How, do we, how does Jonah point us towards Christ? God uses Jonah's shortcomings to point the way to Jesus. He uses imperfect people to point the way to a perfect person who was God's son, who came to earth as a child, as a baby, who grew up. He had pre-teens and teens and all that stuff. He was a toddler at one point. I have a toddler right now. It's really funny to think about Jesus as a toddler, but he was. And he walked when he was 30-ish. He had a ministry he walked around, he healed tons of people. But that ultimately wasn't the reason that he came. He came, said he could be put to death. The ultimate injustice because if you're being put to death justly, it's because you did something to deserve it, but he did nothing to deserve it. He never sinned. He didn't hurt anyone. In fact, the people that put him to death had to make up claims in order to get him murdered. So he lived a sinless life and he died even though he was not either convicted or never committed any actual sin. So why on earth did he die? Solely so that he could pay the penalty for all the rest of our sins on the cross. So that we now have the opportunity not to be destroyed for the sin on our shoulders, but we can be overturned and changed and transformed because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And so I want to lead all of us in a prayer this morning 
Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. You've heard a lot about a really bad prophet today. You've heard a lot about repentance. And you've heard a lot about what God can do with a repentant heart. And so my question to you today is, is your heart repentant? Two different groups of people. Number one, if you're a Christian, if you have been saved by Jesus Christ, you can know that right now that you are changed and transformed and that the judgment for your sins, it didn't go away, but it was already put onto Jesus Christ's shoulders and because of what he's done, it's no longer on us. Thank God for that. But we're still not perfect, and we still struggle with sin. We still struggle with hate. We still struggle to love our enemies. So my question to you, if you know Christ, is this. Will you be repentant, or are you repentant, of the areas of your life in which you need to change? If there is a sin that God has shown you in your life, are you repentant or are you resistant? And I can't answer that question for you today. That's going to require some soul searching. It's going to require some prayer, some talking to God. And he'll walk you through that process. So that's my question to my Christian friends this morning. But if you're here or you're watching on Facebook Live or listening to our podcast, and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I want you to know that you can have it. And it's already been done. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to try harder. You don't have to. You do, the one thing you do have to do is repent. And repenting and accepting Jesus is as simple as ABC. A stands for admit. It means admitting what's true, that you've sinned, that you've hurt people, that you have broken God's laws, and admit that you need somebody to save you from the consequences of your sin. B stands for believe, and that means believe in Jesus and in what Jesus has done. So you believe what the Bible says about him is true, that he, was, that he was born, that he lived a sinless life, that he died a death he didn't deserve to die, and that he rose again. And because of all of that, he actually has the authority now to forgive sin or to judge sin. And he offers every single human that has ever lived the opportunity to be forgiven because he loves you. And the C in ABC stands for choose. And that is a decision that only you can make, where you choose Jesus to be your Lord, and you choose to ask him for forgiveness, and he will. So if that's you, no matter where you are this morning, if you can hear my voice, you have an opportunity right now to be made right with God and to be completely overturned, completely transformed. If you want that, I want to pray a prayer with you right now that you can just pray along in your head and just repeat these words after me. Dear Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. I admit that I have broken your laws. I admit that I've, I've hated or I've done things that I shouldn't have. And I understand that the penalty for those sins is an eternal death. But I believe that you are good. And I believe because you love me, that you made a way for me to be forgiven through your son, Jesus. I believe Jesus lived a sinless life. I believe that he died a death 
in my place. And I believe he rose again. And today, I choose to make you, Jesus, my Lord. Be my leader. Would you forgive me of my sin and take the penalty that you paid on the cross and apply that payment to my account so that I can be free? Now, would you change me and transform me? Help me to stop the sin that I've been doing. Give me pathways to stop and help me and walk with me. I will follow you and thank you for saving me. Amen.